Welcome back to another week in the world of Sasta with me, Harry Stebbings, and it's nearly Christmas, and so if you'd like to see all things behind the scenes here, you can do that on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. But to the show today, and it's a real first for the show, as we have our first CIO on the show, these are the people that quite literally own the IT budgets of today. They can decide whether their large company buys your product or not. It's that simple. And so with that, I'm super excited to welcome Yusuf Khan, serial CIO, startup and VC advisor. Most recently, Yusuf was the CIO and VP of customer success at MoveWorks, the advanced AI built for enterprise, providing automatic resolution of IT issues. During his time at the company, they raised over $108 million from Lightspeed, Iconic, Kleiner, Sapphire, and Bain Capital. Pre-MoveWorks, Yusuf was CIO at Pure Storage during their period of hypergrowth, both as a private and public company. And finally, before Pure, Yusuf's first role in the Valley was with Qualys, again as CIO, where he owned the entire global IT budget. But before we move into the show's day, if there's one thing I suck at, it's organization and that's always around expenses for me. Keeping receipts, losing them, taking photos months later, oh, it's a nightmare. And then we started using Plio, and it enables employees to buy what they need for work with no fuss and no more out-of-pocket purchases. Plus, you take the photo of the receipt in real time, so you don't even need to keep the receipt. And the design is beautiful. Genuinely, it makes it quite fun. Clearly, I need to get out more given I just said that, but don't take my word for it. More than 5,000 European companies use Plio, from Viner Media to Voy and Byron, and you can check them out today. And for SaaS to listeners only, Plio are saying, hey, go on your next business lunch paid for by Plio, and they give you £50 on the Plio card to trial. Genuinely, I absolutely love it, and you can check it out today at plio.io forward slash Sasta. However, metrics are key to every business, and misreported metrics are damaging. Missed revenue opportunities and multiplying process inefficiencies. Does that sound familiar? Well, everyone in your go-to-market org is punching above their weight, yet no needle is moving nearly as fast as it should. Each morning, you wake up with the three big questions, increasingly hard to answer revenue questions, that is. How do we sustain the revenue we're bringing in? How do we identify more avenues to grow revenue? And how can we get real-time visibility into the cracks and fissures of the revenue engine? If that's you, it's exceedingly likely that your revenue infrastructure and processes are headed towards a dreaded natural conclusion, or rather a tangle, a huge bowl of SaaS spaghetti. That diagnosis screams of a revenue operations problem. You can head on over to chargebee.com to learn more about how to battle these inefficiencies in your revenue engine. And if you want to untangle your revenue operations with Chargebee, use Harry25 at checkout and get 25% off your plan. That's Harry2525. And finally, thanks to my friends at WePay. Let me introduce you to another super cool player in the space, Invaluable, the world's leading online marketplace for fine art, antiques, and collectibles. Auction houses, galleries, and dealers use Invaluable to grow their businesses and connect more people around the world with the things they love. And it works with more than 5,000 auction houses globally, including Sotheby's and Philips. And Sotheby's is actually using them as their core technology partner for online bidding on all of its auctions, and you can learn more stay at invaluable.com, but you can also find growth with the combination of WePay and Chase, which means payments you can bank on. To find out how you can add benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payment solution, visit wepay.com forward slash Harry. That's wepay.com forward slash Harry. Enough of these terrible dulcet tones though, and now I'm very excited to welcome our first ever CIO, Yusuf Khan. Good, that's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Yusuf, it is absolutely fantastic to have you on the show. I've heard so many good things, both from Arif and the team at Lightspeed. So thank you so much for joining me today, Yusuf. Well, thank you. Long-time listener, first-time caller. So excited to basically be here. That is that is incredible and thrilled to have another Brit also with that accent. But I want to kick off today with a little about you. So tell me, how did you make your way from the wonderful coast of the UK into the world of SaaS and come to now be one of the leading CIOs in the really rising mega wave of enterprise SaaS? Well, I think leading CIOs is questionable, but I'm getting there, definitely working on it. I think the key thing 
thing that I'd realized after several years in Her Majesty's United Kingdom really centers on the fact that a lot of the technology that I was seeing was really, a lot of the innovation was happening in the Bay Area. I was super excited by it. I'd taken lots of trips and managed a team out there. And I decided to basically make the move to Bay Area in, uh, in 2014 as a CIO uh, for a company called Qualys. And it just happened that uh, they needed a CIO. And I've always been the first CIO for a company. And so the timing and opportunity just aligned. And, and here I am. And so I've been loving it ever since. It's been a great ride. I'm super intrigued on the element of kind of being the first CIO, as you always are there. But I do want to touch on another element of the journey for you, which was your time at Pure Storage. You, so you spent close to four years at Pure Storage during this kind of incredible period of hyper growth. So how did that experience impact your operating mentality? And I guess what were your biggest takeaways from that experience? So a phenomenal company and a phenomenal opportunity to be part of, really just honored to, to basically join a great team and a great culture. The company was going through massive hyper growth. And I think what it taught me on the operating side was that consistency is absolutely fundamental to scale. Secondly, I think you've got to be able to make the hard decisions early versus later. You know, change management is super hard for, for companies that are growing really quickly. So think about it. One of the things I did was listening to people like yourself and, and a whole bunch of others. I took away a lot of lessons about what not to do as well as what to do. And that was one of the things that I'd learned in, from, an, from an operating standpoint. And I think that one of the biggest takeaways is um, hyper growth and scaling fast is really exciting, but it's also really hard. It really only gets successful if you build the right culture around it, which is kind of foundation for it. And I think Pure Storage was one of those amazing companies where the culture was very, very positive, very collaborative. And it was a big takeaway for me to make sure that if you have the right people around you with the right sort of thinking, and as long as you're aligned, then you can do so many amazing things. And I think uh, that was just a really exciting time and exciting company to be part of. Now, you mentioned too that, and I, I did expect to go off schedule, didn't quite expect it this early. So I hope that's okay. But you mentioned the element of kind of internal change there. And then you also mentioned culture. Blending the two together, change can often create uncertainty or maybe concern within the team. How do you think about and how do you advise founders and operators on kind of really enacting internal change, but also maintaining culture and ensuring that people don't feel too disquieted or nervous by the change? Yeah, as you know, you know, I've spoken to many of our mutual friends in the VC and, uh, and the startup ecosystem. And, and, you know, one of the things I realized is that change in culture, probably the biggest thing that we need to do, both as leaders in companies, but as, as well as operators, is be very transparent, number one, about what you're doing and over-communicate. I think this is the things that people just take for granted. Things are just moving at such a dizzying pace that you have to really be able to reiterate and education through repetition is probably one of the advice that I tend to basically give to founders. I think the other thing I would basically say is, as a leader of a company, ask yourself the type of leader that you want to be. And therefore, ask, what do you want this company to end up becoming and be known for? Not just from a product standpoint, but also from just the ability of like what it represents and what do all of your team members represent. So all of those combined, culture is everybody's responsibility. And so being able to kind of signal early, being able to communicate it or over-communicate, being able to define in very clear terms what works and what doesn't work and what you want it to work is probably going to be one of the key things I've basically seen culture working. And I've seen that across companies which have been at early stages and companies which have been growing really quickly as well. So yeah. No, totally. I think the combination of transparency and over-communication is the key there, really. I, I do want to touch now, though, on kind of the meat of it, really, which is your role, and as you said there, kind of often being the first CIO. So before we dive into kind of how the role of chief information officers changed, first, really, what is a CIO and how would you describe the remit of the role? Well, the CIO is fundamentally owning the business technology function of the company. And by business technology function, I want to define that because sometimes there's an overlap with the CTO from an engineering side. So for simplicity's sake, it's kind of owning business infrastructure, application. Uh, and now the role has evolved into owning aspects of data. In some cases, because of lack of CISO or security focus, sometimes owning security as well. And then helping being able to drive innovation across the company. 
company. You know, the role really permeated from focus towards infrastructure for a very long, long time, and that has evolved over time. And I think SaaS has been a phenomenal catalyst to be able to drive that change uh, for the CIO to be much more centrally focused to help innovate the company and help govern it. Can I ask, you mentioned there, and we mentioned earlier in terms of kind of the CIO's buying power and them really holding a lot of the purse strings, so to speak. Is that a new innovation in org structures and the remit of the role? And how have we seen that purchasing power of the CIO maybe change? Well, it's definitely evolved over time. It's definitely increased over time. And I think the reason for that is, is that because of the kind of interconnectedness of systems and architecture, there has been a big role of kind of enterprise architecture across the company. And what that has resulted in is that you have CIOs and their leadership teams are basically involved in architecting systems across the company and what those basically mean. And there's one thing that's definitive as a result for the probably will be for the next five, 10 years is CIOs and IT teams and companies in general will be building more technology and buying more technology for years to come. And as a result of that, because of the interconnectedness, because of the governance, because of the implementation, all of these things have the IT function involved in some way, shape, form. Um, and as a result, they have a bigger vantage point, they have a bigger voice, and therefore they're a big influencer in the actual decision basically being made. And so that's really evolved and I think it will continue to evolve over time. So kind of given the centrality of that role there and kind of the ever-increasing prominence of it, I guess my next question is for operators listening, when is the right time to hire their first CIO and what should they be looking for in those candidates? So I think it's an interesting question because sometimes the CIO is a begrudging hire, unfortunately, for some companies. They're like, do we really need one, et cetera? My advice is hire earlier rather than later. And the reason is because you know even if you're a, a small company, what's happening is you just have a ton of systems in place. Now, it's not the highest priority, of course, to be buying systems. But if you are on a good trajectory, getting someone in a technology leadership role early from either focusing on business applications, at least, is a very, very good thing to do. I think typically what I have seen is basically post 500 upwards, 500 employees upwards, I've typically seen a kind of a, a lean towards basically hiring a technology. It's not typically, it's not always a CIO. Sometimes it is a, a VP of business applications and a VP of infrastructure, and then they look for a CIO. But it really depends on the company as well. But I'm typically seeing that kind of definitely a pre-IPO. I think most companies will want to have a CIO before they go public, before they do major funding events as well. So situationally, it differs from time to time, but it's becoming a much more critical role than it's ever been before. Can I ask, given the criticality of it, founders' awareness of it, and it's real kind of rise and emergence of power. What do you advise founders looking to sell the role to amazing candidates? Is there anything they can do to clinch them and really convert them to join them in that role? Well, so the biggest thing that I've basically seen is CIOs of technology companies, the biggest selling point for them is they represent technology on the external side, number one. Number two, as a result, they have a much better impact on the revenue side. So there are a lot of CIOs who do not want to be involved in that. They don't want to be involved in being externally focused. But I think if you are a founder of a company and you are selling into enterprises, if you're an enterprise software company or enterprise infrastructure company selling into the CIO or selling into the technical organization, it's good to have a CIO involved. I mean, again, it's about the right person who is the right, who has a startup mentality, who actually understands that startups are very different than large scale companies and it involves a tremendous amount of effort across a much broader spectrum. But I would strongly advise those companies to think about two forms. One is to basically bring in a CIO at the right level in a full-time capacity. And the other one is to basically think about a hybrid role whereby you actually build a, a much more rigorous kind of advisory board of CIOs, which is kind of a brain trust for, for all intents and purposes. And you're able to basically, you know, lean on them to be able to not just advocate for you, but also be able to give you advice from go to market. That will help you evolve as a company, both operationally, and then also as you go to market in, in terms of your message. So I want to take kind of two elements that we said that one was kind of in terms of flipping sides of the table to selling CIOs themselves. I often hear the importance of selling the vision of the, what the product can be to the CIO. For you as a, a you know, serial CIO, in terms of like the importance of vision, 
vision and product roadmap over time versus actually what we can do and offer for you now today. How do you balance between the two and how important really is that vision and product roadmap in the buying seat? So the vision and product roadmap is absolutely critical. And I'll tell you why that is, is because most people are buying into that vision. They're buying a platform and as a result, what they're going to be doing is probably saying we're not going to be doing some other investment decisions because we know this company is likely to be able to solve this. And that's what they're basically talking about. Number one. Number two, really having a CIO in that role allows that individual as a peer, not as a typical salesperson or a product person, to be able to articulate and probably have a degree of both empathy and confidence as well as alignment with the CIO on the buying side. And I think that's that plays an important part, which basically says, look, we're aligned. We get your business and we understand this market. We're building a product that will basically meet your needs for many, many years to come. And we're building a platform that you want to basically be part of. And I think a lot of companies have done this really, really well. And I think articulating that and selling that in a way which basically gets people really excited and encapsulated is probably really, really critical. And it's actually really hard to do as well, uh, simply because CIOs have so many priorities to be able to constantly juggle. I think being able to be able to be very prescriptive about that is really, really critical. I think uh, a lot of companies should focus a lot more on it as well. Another one totally off schedule, but I have to ask it in terms of kind of that buying decision, how much of a change does it make for a CIO in terms of their buying decision to have the founder themselves come to them and sell it to them versus the sales team itself? Does that really make a difference? We hear about Mark Benioff getting on jets in the early days. Does that make a difference having the founder there? What would you advise? I mean, I think it does make a, it, well, it definitely doesn't hurt um, unless um, the founder is like just very socially awkward. Like, I mean, if put your best foot forward is what, what I tend to basically say. But I think, that, you know, the critical, it, for, number one, I think it definitely helps. I think it both helps the founder as well. I think the other thing is that most people don't gather is, you know, selling is really hard. Going to market is really hard. Competing is, you know, this is a really competitive industry because the ability to create a product in the SaaS industry and to be able to execute it, get eyeballs and market has become really, really, you know, the barriers have kind of really completely evaporated. And and so I think that having the founders get a viewpoint and vantage point into just that selling process is really important. I think from a buyer's perspective, knowing that they basically have uh, the founder's attention is really important. And I think then the, the third thing is it makes sure that over the longer term, you have much better alignment across a much senior level of the organization, basically. Does it scale? So it's a good question to basically have. And that's where you have to have questions about how do you enable other people, both in sales leadership and others, to represent the company at the executive level. And that's something that, you know, is a continual challenge for people to be able to do that. Totally. It is a challenge. I mean, the other thing that you said there was also kind of building that brain trust. And I love that brain trust comment because I know that you've done some incredible CIO group therapy sessions. So can I ask, what are the commonalities in, in what they're discussing there? And have there been any kind of interesting tidbits and takeaways for you? Yeah. So it's it's interesting. You know, it kind of came about because I'm someone who learns all the time. And, you know, there's certain parts of, of a role that I was doing and I really wanted to be able to kind of bounce some ideas with, with a bunch of CIOs. Long story short, I, I booked a table for just a very few and twice the number showed up because we want to talk about this specific issue. And it was very, very productive. And then four years later, every VC or a startup was calling me up to say, can we sponsor a group therapy dinner? The group therapy dinner really uh, has been there to help founders and help VCs uh, to get a kind of an unfiltered opinion on either investment ideas or product roadmaps. It's not a, a formal dinner. It's something that I organize for as part of my nurturing the community. The commonalities are that you have a very collegial group that is able to think along and be able to be 
build relationships, and therefore that helps make decisions a lot faster. Uh, my ability to be able to uh, go to at least five or 10, 15 CIOs in a very short amount of time about a project or initiative and be able to get really clear opinion, unfiltered, is supremely valuable. So that's one big takeaway. Now, number The biggest, second biggest takeaway is that the ability to build great customer stories, uh, testimonials, case studies, these are absolutely key. Because when CIOs are together in a room and they're talking about issues and they're talking about vendors and what worked well, whatever, you want them to be able to advocate in a very independent way and they're able to do that. Um, and that's been important. I think the third thing that's really taken away is that some of the issues uh, that I'm starting to see from my CIO peers you know, are consistent. One thing which is absolutely consistent is more and more CIOs are focusing on the customer experience and being able to optimize that for every company that they're part of. So it, it kind of, it's irrelevant of the type of company, whether it's enterprise, small, large, or medium, or consumer. The key role of the CIO is evolving in saying, how do we make a better customer experience? How do we basically accelerate revenue? You know, those are things which are very, very common and something that I'm hearing pretty regularly amongst, us, amongst the group therapy dinners that I've been organizing. I mean, my word, there are so many things to unpack. Sorry, I was just writing down my notes that I wanted to unpack. The first that I guess is like, you mentioned earlier to the importance of like customer stories and really customer testimonials. I often have founders say, hey, should I take this discount in return for the testimonial from the customer? What would you advise in terms of that trade-off of kind of discount for testimonial versus, no, we're holding firm on price? How would you advise? Totally, 100%. So here's the thing. The buying decision for a CIO and any line of business, even if it's CMO, it's no longer, it's through so many different tiers. It's not just, I've done some analyst research and, you know, I've asked my team to evaluate. It's across so many different things, right? And so one of them, fundamentally, it's about being able to relate to your peers in good context and actually not accept and accept that it's not a perfect product. Software by nature is an imperfect industry, right? It's supposed to be able to improve and innovate. That's why we have this great ecosystem where you're able to innovate and build better products all the time. My point on that is having peers being able to represent a great buying experience end-to-end. And by the way, the customer experience is not just, I bought this product, I deployed it. It's about the sales engagement. It's about customer success. It's about what the renewal process was. It was what the deployment process was. It was about where the time to value was. All of these things being captured and being able to representing in a testimonial, in a case study which is written, these things are immensely valuable. Uh, and, you know, I've tried to be supportive of, of startups uh, for a long time. And the reason is because I know that selling is hard. I know that basically being able to change people's mind. But I would, I would much rather that a, a CIO or a peer call me up and say, hey, by the way, this company is pitching to me. What do you think? And my ability to ba- basically confidently say, that's a great solution. You should definitely use it. Here's why. And by the way, uh, if your situation is different, this is why you shouldn't. Of course, that doesn't really happen that often. It's uh, much further along. But one thing I would recommend every single startup to do is to focus on customer stories, customer stories, customers. Let the customer tell the story and it will take care of itself. Now, the other question I have was, obviously, I meet a lot of companies today and you said there about the importance and centrality of customer experience in terms of the CIO's mindset. And I mean, a lot of companies today, my question to them is, is this a top three buying decision one? And often that's predicated around, does it fundamentally add net ARR and does it fundamentally present prevention? And it has to do, in my mind, one of the two, prevention or add ARR. Is that too simplistic and binary thinking of me? And is there more of a nuanced perspective to the CIO's buying mentality? That's a fair opinion, but I think has it's evolved from that a little bit. I just, I, like I said, I just, I fundamentally believe that because people are thinking from such a wide vantage point that they're just going to have many more data points when it comes down to making that, make that decision. And I think, so yeah, that's, I'm sorry, I haven't answered the question. No, that, that, to- that, that totally is. No, it's a, it's a total answer. I guess my other question was also, you mentioned the budget of the CIO there. Yes. In terms of timing within the year, totally naive question. Is there a right time 
to present to CIOs? And is there a higher likelihood, dependent on certain times within certain quarters, that they have more elastic or available budgets? Or is it an annual budget that's just stock given? I'll tell you one thing. I don't think it's... So one thing to avoid is right at the end of the year. Like in, you know, you have to understand just business planning cycles are just such that just from a time perspective, CIOs just won't be able to make the time. So that's one. I think the second thing is they tend to, they dislike surprises. So this aspect of being able to do a deal and try and get it done, uh, you know, by the end of the quarter. I mean, look, it's very exciting. It's exhilarating feeling being, in being able to know. And you see all this thing on LinkedIn from all these companies like saying, yeah, we just did another quarter and it's quarter end, et cetera. That is great if you're selling. If you're buying, being able to constantly trying to push things on the other side isn't a great experience, by the way. Finance departments aren't the biggest fans of surprises, especially if you're a public company. And so, you know, I think you have to be thoughtful. One thing that most, I would advise most SaaS companies to do is to ask, what is the right time? There's a lot of solutions, you know, ripping out solutions isn't as easy as people think it is. It takes time to be able to make big decisions across uh, across a, a large end user base. And so as a result, remember that the buying cycle is, is long. I don't think there's a perfect time. I just think that there are certain times you should avoid. Quarter end, you know, isn't for some businesses absolutely worthwhile. But in most cases, it is. I think it really, I think one thing is actually being thoughtful is knowing that the CIO does make the end decision, but they do it in partnership with their direct reports. And so being able to get their time, and so therefore you become an obvious choice and an obvious decision is probably the route to market rather than, I just want to get into hold of a CIO and I'll basically speak to them directly. Yes, it does work, but I think the world is moving much further than being able to make sure because the people who are implementing these solutions are uh, the CIO's leadership team. And they're direct. So being able to actually build momentum and a campaign across that set is something that uh, is pretty consistent. When we put on the startup founder hat, I am really interested. You spoke there about the challenges of the sales themselves, which absolutely they are. And I often have early stage founders say to me, Harry, should I go for the quantity of logos, be it maybe smaller accounts, but get more of them, higher frequency, higher velocity? Or should I go for those massive logos, that real social validity from your named accounts? How would you advise and think about founders with that, with maybe the trade-off of time? What would you advise then? So it's a very good question. So it actually depends on the type of business you want to build. If you are building what you fundamentally believe to be a longer term, large enterprise business, then fundamentally you should be going for the big logos. And the reason you're going for the big logos is you want to demonstrate to pretty much everyone that you can play and you can operate and your comp- and your product is being used by sizable companies where it is really difficult to maybe implement or create change, etc. You're, if you're able to do that, it demonstrates you effectively are sending a signal to prospective customers that, hey, by the way, you've been successful with these companies. On the flip side, you actually want to make customers really, really successful. So the trade-off is, do you want to basically have very, very few really good customers or big logos, for example? Or do you want to have a list of diverse customers who are wildly successful with your product? The challenge that really becomes is because companies may spend too much time going after logos and therefore they're now pigeonholed in the CIO's viewpoint as possibly focused towards a very specific sector or a specific type of business. And so having diversity of customers is my biggest piece of advice that people should operate towards and make them supremely successful. If you make customers supremely successful, they will shout your praises and they will do it independently. They will tweet about it. They will talk about it. And you know they will love to be able to tell that story. Focus on the success piece first and foremost, but make, and I think the other thing is, you know, think about the type of business that you want to be able to run. I mean, look, you may just be the right sort of software for a startup. And if that's the case, that's great. There are thousands of them and you'll basically make a great, great business. But you have to then know if you basically built up a whole huge logo account in that in that vertical, that going and selling into the bigger enterprises, the Fortune 500 is maybe a little bit more difficult. So that's there's a fundamental question that the founder team really need to ask themselves first and foremost. And speaking of the founding team asking themselves questions there, a question, another question that I often get asked is, you know, if they're doing multi-year and multi-year deal 
feel sorry in terms of kind of paying up front. How much of a role does that really play in the CIO's mindset of whether to buy or not if it's a requested payment up front for a multi-year deal? And how do you advise founders to think about upfront payment for multi-year deals? I would do it if, depending on the product itself, in terms of what the time to value is. The, the question really comes down to is, are you basically buying a product where you've done a very, very good POC and you know this product is done well in that situation and therefore will do well in the longer term? And therefore, from that standpoint, it actually makes sense to be able to say, okay, I'm going in for the longer term and I'm going to be able to make this investment and I'm going to lock in and I have cost certainty. The good thing, as I said earlier, finance teams don't like surprises. So being able to present yourself as someone who's made a sensible investment decision as a CIO with a vendor that you've tested out the product and you've clearly thought through the buying decision and you've been able to give yourself cost certainty is a, is a very, very good thing. However, the flip side to that, it really depends on what the posture is for the actual company. Most vendors, unfortunately, and most SaaS companies, and I say this with respect, really need to understand the context of the company. If you are selling to a company where the, C, where the company has is very low margins or you know, it has cyclical, for example, because of the, the nature of the industry, then you've got to be very conscious about what you're asking for and what the trade-offs are. What, what is the discount value that you're going to basically attach to it. And what are you willing to offer for that discount as well? So I think it's situation by situation. But one of the consistent themes is getting cost certainty is a typically a very good thing. And if you have certainty about being able to buy a product which you know will serve you well over the longer term, fundamentally, you should be able to go in with a pretty strong posture as a SaaS vendor to say, we know we're going to be successful. This is the right thing for you. And this is a commercially sensible decision for me. By the way, one thing that founders don't do, they don't ask enough. And I, I mean this in the nicest possible way. They should be much more transparent about what is going to help, help their business. Don't in any way, all the CIOs know you're a startup. We know that you're basically trying to raise money or you're trying to basically get logos, etc. We know that. And so it's much better to be upfront and honest to say, this will help my company and help my business as a CEO and a founder of a company to a CIO, rather than basically trying to basically be very hardball about, let, let me get a really good discount and let me, get, let me get a win for everyone. I mean, open transparency is probably a much better buying experience than trying to basically go back and forth on, on, on discount levels the entire time. I think, you know, I think th those days are. I know when I speak to my CIO peers, they definitely uh, they want the more transparent way of buying and be helpful to startups. And a lot of CIOs really do want to be helpful to startups. I'm, you know, I'm just one of many, basically. I mean, I have to say, I love the way that I had a really precise schedule mapped out here, Yusuf, and uh, I'm totally gone off it, but uh, you're just leading me down these tangents that I'm too interested by. And another one was, you said that about knowing that they're startups. And that's a big question that, again, founders have for me, which is like, they're raising, they have six months of runway, and they could be managing mission-critical applications for large enterprises. Do CIOs actually get very concerned by this? How open ball should founders play? I've heard of even kind of showing company balance sheets. So I guess my question is, how vulnerable are CIOs to the vulnerability of potential applications and vendors they buy? And, and what would you advise founders in presenting that to the companies? You know, I think, so here, here's one of the advice that I've given, which is why I've done a lot part of these uh, group therapy dinners. And the group therapy dinners, like I said, are sponsored by either a VC or a startup. And one of the reasons that I've tried to be as helpful to VCs as well as startups is really because it, it has given me a vantage point in terms of where industries are moving towards, where the investments are, et cetera. So one resolution for every CIO should basically be that they should partner up with VCs a lot more and more. And that gives them a little bit more reference when they're looking at a company that they're looking 
looking to basically partner with. On the other side, if you are a startup and you are a founder, then yes, raising a, uh, having done a round of financing sends a signal to a buyer to say that you're here for the longer term, number one. Uh, number two, it gives confidence that a whole bunch of other people have decided to invest money because they believe that this is something will go for the longer term. I think the level of transparency, I have not seen that in terms of balance sheet, et cetera. I think the question has really come down to is, what is the business trajectory and the traction that they're on? So my biggest advice to founders and startup CEOs is, is as follows. Be very, very clear about where you are as a business and where you're heading towards. It's absolutely fine for you to basically say, we are basically building our first 10 customers and we would like you to be part of their foundation customers you know, for a very heavy discount because we know this is a good product and you're a forward-looking company and therefore we think this will be successful. It's absolutely fine for you to do that. On the flip side, you should also basically, when you are in a go-to-market motion, you should be confident about the type of business that you're running. Most companies make this big mistake. They, kind of, they come in and try and sell and they say, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, we've got this great product and it's, it's demonstrating, it's a great demo. And by the way, you know, we've, we've got a whole bunch of references. But why don't you go one step further and say, what is the type of business that you're trying to run? What is the industry that you're trying to basically change? These are the visions that people want to basically buy into. And as a result of that, that basically gives people the confidence because if you're able to give that pitch to a potential customer like a CIO, you definitively know that they're giving that pitch to a VC. And somewhere down the line, someone's going to buy into that based on a good track record and they're going to invest more in it. So then any notion of like, is this company going to survive or not kind of goes out the door to a certain extent. I haven't seen it happen, by the way. I haven't seen this aspect of being able to put in something and maybe I've picked relatively well. I've been overly conservative. I've done too much due diligence to, so, to a certain extent. But you know, some of these things really comes down to, are you buying a solution which is fixing a business problem? And how much are you willing to make it a success as much as the vendor? And that's really where the CIO and startup partnership comes in place. I've been exceptionally verbose. So feel free to stop and say, order, order, like Mr. Burkow himself. Uh, I want to try and be helpful there. So yes. Listen, as I said, this is like the most joyous interview for me where I completely go off schedule. But I, I do want to ask one final question before the quick fire. And that question is, you mentioned time to value. Now, it's a really interesting one. Everyone says, oh, time to value, got to be as short as possible, got to be as short as possible. When you're in these longer cycles and selling to these very large enterprises and really integration and doing it well is key, how important really is time to value in the mind of the CIO? Oh, it's become a lot more important over time. And the reason for that is, is because things are just moving at a dizzying pace. Every CIO I speak to, so I will tell you that change management and enablement is really hard in companies. You know, you buy a solution and you want to deploy it out. You're sending emails and Slack messages. and I mean, it just, it just takes a long time. And so one of the things that CIOs need to get better with, especially working with companies, is what is the change management that's involved? Some companies, that time to value takes a little bit of time. That's fine. But as long as you're transparent about what it takes to be able to make that work, great. You're in a great position because you've set expectations right. The worst companies or the worst experiences are those where you've over-promised them, where you basically said, oh, it's really, really easy to deploy. Oh, it's really, really easy to integrate. You know, nothing is really easy. So with all due respect, the time to value conversation is much more about what the expectation setting is rather than putting a definitive number saying, oh, it'll be done within a week. That's not what people are aiming for. People are aiming for successful deployments and getting, be able to extract value. And then the conversation is, what is the plan to get to that value? I think those are the, the companies that present a plan, the companies that are transparent about a process, the companies that go through the steps and show you what success looks like. Because most people actually forget. They say, what does success look like? You end up doing these IT projects uh, and deploying out these solutions. They take literally months and months and months and months to deploy. And you're like, why are we doing this again? So being able to reiterate value, being able to come up with a plan, being able to walk people through a journey of what that takes, knowing that this is hard, knowing that this is different. Those are the companies that are going to be successful in the year ahead because they're going to make a much better buying experience.
experience and a, and a, and a deployment experience than others, basically. Well, I've decided uh, while you've been talking that we're going to do a round two on customer success because there is so much for us to cover that literally uh, I, I, I cannot stop asking you questions. No, that's fantastic. <laughs> well, the, the funny thing, as you know, I'm the weirdo in the barrier for many, many reasons other than just the fact that I always wear a sweater vest and my nickname is sweater vest or vest in some cases. But I will tell you, I've been the one CIO that, you know, or one of few CIOs I'd probably say is I, I've tried to be helpful to founders as an operator, but I've also basically worked on the customer success side. So hopefully chapter two, if this is not a complete debacle, I'd love to be able to have that discussion. Listen, I, with, with or without your consent, we're doing chapter two. I'm taking this under my remit, but uh, no, That's I would good. love to make that happen. But I do want to move into my favorite, which is the quick fire, Yusuf. So yes. you know the drill here. I say the short statement, you hit me with your thoughts. Ready to roll? Yes, sir. So what motto or quote do you most frequently revert back to? Build a company that inspires you. Tell me, what separates good from great when it comes to CIOs? Taking some risks, communicating effectively, and driving for change. How should strong operators coming out of larger organizations assess which startup to join? Probably think about which product they would love to be a customer of and would love to sell well. Now, you have this unique vantage point. You've been a board member and you've also kind of operated with boards as an operator. What makes the best board members in your eyes? Ones who are the most helpful to founders. What are you expecting from AWS this year? You're in Vegas as we speak. I'm expecting uh, Andy Jassy to say some key things in his keynote, which starts off with something like, we've been listening to customers, we've been working really hard, and a whole bunch of startups fearing for their lives as a result of it. And I'm also expecting a dizzying pace of innovation uh, being announced uh, as always. What are your strengths and weaknesses, Yusuf? 30 seconds on strengths, 30 seconds on weaknesses. On strengths, I'd probably say I'm an effective communicator given the opportunity, intellectually curious, and I'm a very big learner. Uh, on the weaknesses, I'd probably say I need to get much better at prioritization because I get overly excited about stuff. Tell me, Yusuf, final one. What do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of your time in the Valley when you moved in, was it 2014? The biggest thing I know is startups are really, really hard. I mean, I know startups are hard. Hard, but startups are really, really hard. I applaud, respect uh, companies and startups at early stages, people who want to be able to create a company and get an idea to market. I just, I appreciate it so much more than I've ever had before having been here. And it's something that I've always wished I could be more helpful towards given the opportunity to do so. Well, Yusuf, as you can tell from my completely fleeting away from the schedule, I've so enjoyed this. So thank you so much for joining me today. And we will do a round two. It's been fantastic. I've, uh, I'm honored to basically be there. To, to talk with you. Uh, I look forward to basically chapter two uh, in the future. Well, as you could tell, I absolutely love that. And when you look at the schedule, it is totally different to what we discussed because it was just such a free and natural flowing conversation. If you'd like to see more from us, you can do so on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. It really would be great to see you there. But before we leave you today, if there's one thing I suck at, it's organization. And that's always around expenses for me. Keeping receipts, losing them, taking photos months later. Oh, it's a nightmare. And then we started using Plio and it enables employees to buy what they need for work with no fuss and no more out-of-pocket purchases. Plus, you take the photo of the receipt in real time, so you don't even need to keep the receipt. And the design is beautiful. Genuinely, it makes it quite fun. Clearly, I need to get out more given I just said that. But don't take my word for it. More than 5,000 European companies use Plio, from Viner Media to Voy and Byron, and you can check them out today. And for SaaS to listeners only, Plio are saying, hey, go on your next business lunch paid for by Plio, and they give you £50 on the Plio card to trial. Genuinely, I absolutely love it, and you can check it out today at plio.io 
forward slash Sasta. However, metrics are key to every business and misreported metrics are damaging. Missed revenue opportunities and multiplying process inefficiencies. Does that sound familiar? Well, everyone in your go-to-market org is punching above their weight, yet no needle is moving nearly as fast as it should. Each morning you wake up with the three big questions, increasingly hard to answer revenue questions, that is. How do we sustain the revenue we're bringing in? How do we identify more avenues to grow revenue? And how can we get real-time visibility into the cracks and fissures of the revenue engine? If that's you, it's exceedingly likely that your revenue infrastructure and processes are headed towards a dreaded natural conclusion, or rather a tangle, a huge bowl of SaaS spaghetti. That diagnosis screams of a revenue operations problem. You can head on over to chargebee.com to learn more about how to battle these inefficiencies in your revenue engine. And if you want to untangle your revenue operations with Chargebee, use Harry25 at checkout and get 25% off your plan. That's Harry2525. And finally, thanks to my friends at WePay. Let me introduce you to another super cool player in the space, Invaluable, the world's leading online marketplace for fine art, antiques, and collectibles. Auction houses, galleries, and dealers use Invaluable to grow their businesses and connect more people around the world with the things they love. And it works with more than 5,000 auction houses globally, including Sotheby's and Philips. And Sotheby's is actually using them as their core technology partner for online bidding on all of its auctions. And you can learn more today at invaluable.com. But you can also find growth with the combination of WePay and Chase, which means payments you can bank on. To find out how you can add benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payment solution, visit wepay.com forward slash Harry. That's wepay.com forward slash Harry. As always, I so appreciate your support and I can't wait to bring you our most downloaded episode of 2019 next Monday.